This morning's sermon text will be Luke 23, verses 18 to 25. But they all cried together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started to... Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. I pray that you would open our eyes to the wonders of your word. Pray that you would keep our eyes focused on your son, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And pray that we constantly rejoice and celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So back in 2004, a major film was released. To date, it is the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. And while this might surprise you, I'm certain that many of you, possibly even most of you, have seen this film, as it's also the highest grossing Christian film of all time. A very controversial film at the time, and even to date, still a little controversial. It was produced and directed and written by Mel Gibson. The film title is The Passion of the Christ. I remember when it was released, it was marketed as being the most realistic film depicting the passion narrative, even to the point where the film was in Aramaic and Hebrew and Latin. The film was met with great acclaim by some. It won three Academy Awards. It was also, though, met with great controversy. In 2006, Entertainment Weekly named it the most controversial film of all time. The second film following it was Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. That definitely surprised me, and I'm sure if any of you are familiar with that book or that movie, Clockwork Orange, you will also be quite surprised that The Passion of the Christ was more controversial. But part of the controversy was the extreme violence, which makes sense, which is what gets at the R rating. But another part of the controversies, the film was branded as being anti-Semitic or prejudiced against Jews. One New York Times writer described it as the most virulently anti-Semitic film made since the German propaganda films of World War II. It's a pretty bold charge, isn't it? To compare the narrative of the passion of Jesus and a film of the sort to being 
more anti-Semitic or as, or almost as, since German World War II propaganda films. Yet it makes one wonder, what about the film was anti-Semitic? Did it have racial slurs or harmful stereotypes? No, it wasn't that. This is a quote from an article that I read from the ADL, or Anti-Defamation League, which is a group that's primarily dedicated to the stopping of defamation of the Jewish people. In the article concerning the film, they wrote, We were saddened and pained to find that the Passion of the Christ continues its unambiguous portrayal of Jews as being responsible for the death of Jesus. There is no question in this film about who is responsible. At every single opportunity, Mr. Gibson's film reinforces the notion that the Jewish authorities and the Jewish mob are the ones ultimately responsible for the crucifixion. To sum that up, the claim is that the movie is prejudiced because it places the responsibility for Jesus' death upon the Jews, Jesus' own people. Now, I'm not going to celebrate or defend the movie or anything of that sort. It's not flawless. It certainly has its flaws. And even today, you know, almost 20 years later, I'm not even certain if I'd recommend anyone need to go watch it. Um, Not to put her on the spot, but I'm going to. My wife has never seen the film, and um, I've watched it, but only once, never a second time, and I'm not even recommending it. But the question concerning the film really is this, and the question I want to point out today is, Is the portrayal that the Jewish people are responsible for the death of Jesus, is it an an inappropriate anti-Semitic quirk of the film? Or did Mel Gibson get this direction from the biblical text? Because this charge isn't exclusive to this movie. There's a whole sort of people who would say the New Testament carries the same sort of anti-Semitic bias. There's even some credit that people have said that passion narratives being back to the 13th century or passion plays have the same sort of bias. And so, in a sense, the question that we're looking at is from the text, who is it that's responsible for the death of Jesus? Is it the Jews? Is it Pilate? Is it someone else? Is it Judas? And so, in a sense, we find ourselves with a biblical case of who done it. And thus, there are two questions that we'll look at or answer today. First of which is, as I said, who done it? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? The second is, as the sermon title represents, Jesus or Barabbas? No, that's not a full question, but we'll answer it nonetheless. Yet one of the first things that we need to know is who is involved in this narrative. The portion of the text begins with, they all cried out together. So who is they all? Well, and this goes back to verse 13, which identifies as the priests, the rulers, and the people, or the crowd, or the mob. But remember that this is all in the context of Holy Week. This all goes back to Luke 19. And in Luke 19.38, there's a large multitude of people shouting praises. They're shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So, as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, 
They're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But yet now here, the crowd is shouting something quite different. Some have tried to say it's the same crowd. I don't know that the text necessarily identifies that it's the same crowd. As we look at the other Gospels, we'll see that this crowd and whoever's contained in it, to some degree, were stirred up by the chief priests and the rulers. But this crowd here, whoever it might be, are shouting, away with this man. So they've gone from, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace and heaven and glory in the highest, to get him out of our sight, away with him. And then they demand for the release of a man named Barabbas. And yet, this is really the only instance where we see Barabbas mentioned by name. He's mentioned again in Acts as well, but not by name. And so all four gospel narratives include this event of Barabbas being chosen over Jesus. They're illustrated a little bit differently. And what's different is that the other gospels demonstrate that Pilate suggested Barabbas, and that it was part of a custom to release one prisoner during Passover week. And so this is mentioned in Matthew and Mark and in John. At some point throughout history, some tried to insert it into Luke's narrative, but it's not there originally. And so that's the background of the whole event, is that Luke is demonstrating that at this event, the crowd is demanding that Barabbas is released and they send away Jesus instead. And so Luke mentions Barabbas before he mentions who Barabbas is, which is what we see in verse 19. In verse 19, Luke tells us who Barabbas is, that he was thrown in prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and that he was thrown in prison also for murder. John 18.40 also identifies him as a robber. Luke in Acts 3 verse 14 writes, You denied the holy and righteous one, Jesus, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And so there Luke emphasizes even more in Acts 3 that Barabbas was a murderer. murderer. And we should immediately be struck by how incredibly ridiculous it is that they demanded an insurrectionist, a robber, a murderer, rather than who Luke defines as the holy and righteous one. They demand one who was clearly guilty rather than one who was clearly innocent. However, recall how the accusers described Jesus to Pilate in Luke 23, verse 2, where Luke writes, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They describe Jesus in verse 5 of Luke 23 as one who stirs up the people, as one who misled their nation in Luke 23, 14, forbid them from giving uh, tribute to Caesar, which is what I just read in verse 2, uh, saying that he is the Christ. One of those charges is correct. However, with the first accusations that he misled their nation, that he stirs up the people, that sounds a lot like how we might describe an insurrectionist, does it not? And now, the charge of insurrection, though, is applied to Barabbas. It likely refers to either an event within the city of Jerusalem in the form of a revolt against the Romans. So either he was trying to lead the Jewish people to overthrow the Roman government, or 
it likely referred to him stirring up strife among the Jews themselves. Either way, he was stirring up people to some sort of strife, some sort of overthrowing of the government. So in tying together that the man they requested to be released attempted to overthrow the government or at least led to some sort of civil unrest among the Jewish people and that he was convicted of murder, Barabbas is the exact opposite of Jesus. The things they're accusing Jesus of, Barabbas is actually guilty of. And several scholars, though, have suggested that Pilate may have intentionally compared Barabbas and, Judah, and Jesus um, as if the obvious answer would be, take Jesus, not Barabbas. I mean, we think of this today, especially when we're trying to justify ourselves or someone else. Who do we compare them with? We choose the exact worst person possible. We'll go to, well, at least this person's not Hitler, or at least they didn't do what Jeffrey Dahmer did. We go to the exact opposite pinnacle of awful and choose someone like that. Some scholars have suggested that's what Pilate's doing here, and I think that could be defended. And yet at the same point, it's interesting that as Luke shows it, that's who the crowd chooses. And in verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. So Pilate is in Jesus' corner trying to defend him. And the interesting thing about this text is that when we read how Pilate reacts to the crowd, it's Pilate who is defending Jesus, which is not how we normally think of Pilate. Pilate wants to release Jesus. At this point in the narrative, Pilate is looking a lot better than we often give him credit for. Twice now, Pilate has declared that Jesus is innocent. And yet he seemingly has tried to compare him to the worst person possible at the time so that he might be released. But then the crowd is relentless, continually shouting, crucify, crucify him. And Pilate wanting to release him, them wanting to crucify him. And so Luke is further describing their chanting. They kept shouting. So they went from shouting away with him to now shouting crucify him. And it's certainly, when we're reading it, we kind of look at it and appropriately should go, well, well, that escalated quite quickly. First you wanted him sent away, and now you want him crucified. And we have to ask the question, what sort of people are crucified? It was the common method of execution of the day, but criminals were who were crucified. And we see that Jesus is crucified among two thieves, two men quite like Barabbas, a robber, a, a murderer, an insurrectionist. But Pilate, continuing to defend Jesus, responds and says, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. That's important. Pilate has said he has found no guilt in Jesus, no guilt deserving death. I therefore will punish and release him. A third time he said to them. So in verses 4, verse 14, and now in 22, Pilate has declared Jesus innocent. Three times Jesus has been declared innocent and free of guilt. Three, of course, is a significant number. It's a number of completion. And as we see three things appearing quite a bit in this text, 
or excuse me, quite a bit in just this entire narrative. As we think of Peter, Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus restores Peter three times. And so it's in this text, though, that we see Pilate three times declares that Jesus is without guilt. Pilate is making a complete confession of Jesus' innocence. But in addition to this, something else happens three times. Three times Luke records cries from the crowd, away with him, crucify him, and then louder cries of crucifixion. They were urgent in demanding this. Urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. The crowd has for the third time rejected Jesus. So Luke juxtaposes Pilate's complete confession of Jesus' innocence with the crowd's complete rejection of Jesus. But yet, generally speaking, when we think of this narrative in retrospect, we don't think of Pilate as being the voice of reason. Even one of our oldest Christian confessions, the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And yet the historic confession, though, it's doing more than just picking on Pilate. For one, we see that in verse 24, Pilate does indeed grant their request, and Jesus does indeed suffer under Pontius Pilate. And yet the historic confession is placing Jesus historically under Pilate. It doesn't appear that Pilate needs all that much persuasion as we look at the text. He ultimately desired to please the crowd more than he desired to defend the life of the innocent Savior. And when we're looking at Pilate, he's apathetic at best and a coward at worst. And ultimately, we have to concede that he either doesn't care about justice or simply he just wants to keep the peace. Or... He's afraid of the people and wants to keep them happy. There's conflicting historical evidence about the, about the character of Pilate. Some people describe Pilate as just being a coward. Other people describe him as just not caring. So from uh, historians, it's hard to really say. But yet, when we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, we're not simply placing the blame on Pilate. Pilate's the governor, and thus he's the only one there who had the authority to sentence Jesus to death. The Jewish people do not have this authority to sentence anyone to death at this point. Again, remember, they're under Roman rule, so ultimately it goes back to Rome and the governors to place someone under that. So it's very likely that Pilate was most concerned with keeping the peace. He was more concerned with preventing any sort of unrest or any sort of further insurrection from occurring. In addition to that, the involvement of Pilate here really, though, seats the passion narrative in history. Of course, we, as Bible-believing Christians, would say this is a true and historical document. But it is helpful that there are historical events where we can see that Pilate is being demonstrated as being a historical figure, a true historical figure that indeed lived in the time that the Bible asserts that he lived. So for those who are skeptical, there's a connection to a historical figure. Pilate's mentioned by various other historical figures, by Josephus, by Tacitus, by Philo. All of them mention Pilate in some form or another. Even beyond that, there are inscriptions that have been found. There are coins. There are rings that all give credence to Pilate's 
gubernatorial rule in the first century between 26 and 36 or 37 AD. And so we should by no means be surprised that history and archaeology support the events of the gospel narratives. We continue to find this over and over again. They're discovering historical things and archaeological things that give support for the Bible, for David, for Abraham, for Jesus. So yet, contrary to what modern skeptics and the History Channel might tell you, archaeology and history and literature repeatedly prove that the Bible is true and reliable and faithful. And thus our historical confession that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate is a confession that Jesus truly suffered as the suffering servant described in Isaiah and did so in time, in history, under a real governor who actually declared him innocent prior to putting him to death. Though Pilate had thrice declared Jesus innocent, and though he attempted to compare him to a murderer who was guilty of worse than what they were accusing Jesus of, he inevitably gave into the crowd. It wasn't Rome or Pilate who called for the crucifixion, but it was the Jewish chief priests and followers. But it was Pilate who had the authority to do this, and it was Pilate who gave in to their will. And I think you can see clearly in the biblical text the responsibility of certain Jewish parties wasn't a fabrication of Mel Gibson in his film. He wasn't taking creative liberty or having some anti-Semitic bias that some have accused him of. But it's the script representing what the biblical text shows us. But yet that's not all that the biblical text shows us. To add to all of that, the same people who would concede that the movie has this anti-Semitic bias, likely would say that the Bible has the same thing. They'd read this text and say, well, it's just anti-Jewish, which is really laughable when you think about it, as sad as that might be, because it's not prejudiced since it's recording a historical event that occurred. And let's not forget, though, that the Jewish chief priests were the ones who called for the crucifixion of one who later in this narrative would be called the king of the Jews. As we sing in the song Christ Alone, he was scorned by the ones he came to save. He was betrayed by his own people and handed over to the Gentiles. So it's not the case that the gospel writers were being anti-Semitic, being again reminded that the gospel writers themselves were Jewish people. But it is indeed the case that the crowd was being anti-Christ. However, there are two additional things mentioned concerning this. It wasn't every single Jewish person who was calling for the crucifixion of Jesus. And thus, it's not the people or the nation as a whole who were responsible, which is how some try to distort this claim here. Jesus' disciples, again, were Jews. Many of the earliest converts to Christianity were Jews as well. It is the chief priests and their followers, though, who were guilty of this. The New Testament makes it very clear that Jesus is the one who is control, in control of his life. He tells Pilate in the Gospel of John that Pilate wouldn't have any authority to free him or to crucify him unless that authority had been given to him from above. 
If we look back to what I read earlier in Isaiah 53, in verse 10, we read that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. There's a whole lot more going on in this text than simply just Pilate caving into a mob that had been stirred up by the priests to call for Jesus' crucifixion. In Acts 2, verses 23 through 24, we read Luke recording, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so Luke, even in Acts makes a play on these two things. He, he reveals that it was those people, the priest, the crowd, that crucified and killed Jesus, delivered or crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But it was done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross was not happenstance, but it was definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus says that he lays his life down and that no one takes it from him. In the gospel text describing Jesus' death, he gives up his life. He breathes his last, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So connecting back to the, the film, The Passion of the Christ, one more time, following the release of this movie, I remember seeing a newspaper clip um, appear outside of my then pastor's office door. It was a comic strip, and it was a scene of people entering into a movie theater in a line, and then it had them entering out on the other side, and it said on the marquee, The Passion of the Christ is the film they were going to see, and they're exiting with thought bubbles above their head, reading, I'm guilty. And certainly it is an appropriate response, thinking upon the death of Jesus, that we would realize that we are guilty for the death of Jesus. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And so wrapping that back up to the first question is, so who is guilty for the death of Jesus? The Jewish leaders called for him to be crucified. Pilate delivered him over to the hands of the people. But it pleased the Father to crush him. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Our sins were placed on Jesus so that we might be forgiven. So in a sense of who done it, the answer becomes all of us. But yet when we look at the text, we need to be cautious in how we read it. So from since around the 1960s or 70s, there's been a really popular form of reading that's been taught in schools. It's kind of sought to wane a little bit, but maybe not as much. And this is a form of reading that's called reader response. It's a form of reading that always privileges the reader and never the text. It's a form of reading where the reader always goes, how does this apply to me? Where am I in this text? And generally speaking, it always turns to make the reader the hero, which is an extremely dangerous way to read the Bible, especially when it comes to narratives such as David and Goliath. This is where we get sort of that idea of it's a David and Goliath story where you hear an NFL announcer 
or some sports announcer where you've got the last place team taking on the first place team and the last place team is winning. And they go, it's, own, it's an old David and Goliath story, which is a complete misrepresentation of that text. Because if you look at it, David's never the underdog. David comes in the name of the Lord. And the Lord is always going to conquer over Goliath. That's an aside. But we should be cautious never to read the Bible where we're always the hero. It's a terrible way to read the Bible. And to quote one pastor, you're not David. Unless, of course, your name is David, but that's not what I mean, and you already know that. However, if you're going to place your place, and let me say this, actually. Of course, we can and should apply the Bible to our lives. The Bible is relevant and useful. The scriptures are useful for training in righteousness, that the man of, go- man of God may be equipped for every good work. Yes, absolutely. I affirm 100% what it is that Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 3. But if you're going to place yourself in the narrative, do not place yourself in the place of Jesus unless the narrative tells you to do such. But in this text we do see a person whom we might identify with. That person is Barabbas. Now, you might think it's a little extreme to compare yourself to someone who was guilty of murder and someone who tried to overthrow the government. But take note of what's happening here. Let's look again at verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. He released the man who'd been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder. This man was guilty. Everyone knew that Barabbas was guilty. Pilate knew it. The crowd knew it. Jesus knew it. Barabbas knew it. Jesus was completely innocent. Pilate declares this three times. And yet, Jesus is given over to the will of the people. And the murderer, the insurrectionist, is set free. So the name Barabbas means son of the father. Bar meaning son. Abba or Abbas meaning father. And there's something remarkable about what's happening here. The son of man is crucified so that the son of the father might be released. An innocent man is put to death so that a guilty man might be set free. Jesus died the death that Barabbas should have died. It's a wonderful picture of the substitutionary atonement that we receive in Christ. We are guilty sinners who are guilty of the same things Barabbas is. And before you say, whoa, 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 I've never killed a guy, let's think about Jesus' words here. Consider what Jesus says about hating your brother in Matthew, 21 and 22, or Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And in John, in 1 John, in his epistle, in 1 John, 5, or in 1 John 3, 13, John writes, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So maybe you've never tried to overthrow the government, but in the Bible is an abundantly clear statement that all have fallen short of the glory of God. 
Then also consider, though, what sin is. And sin is an insurrection against God's rule and God's command. Richard Aline, a Puritan, said it this way, Sin is the insurrection and rebellion of the heart against God. It turns from him and turns against him. It takes up arms against God. To read that first part again, Sin is the insurrection and rebellion of the heart against God. And thus we find ourselves guilty of the same things as Barabbas. And yet also, like Barabbas, Jesus takes our place. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. The Son of Man is crucified so that we might be called sons of God. The Christ was cursed, hung on a tree, so that we might be saved from the curse of the law. Then a little bit further down in Galatians 3, in 25 and 26, Paul writes, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. A few moments ago, Jim had quoted from 1 John and saying, and we will be called sons of God and we, are, we shall be called children of God and we are. The biblical text shows that those who profess faith in Christ are called children of God, who are called sons of God. And thus the Son of Man was crucified so that we might be called sons of God. It was not for the evils that Jesus committed that he died, but for the evils that we committed. Christ Jesus died to save sinners. And Paul, in what's believed to be an early confession in the, book, in the letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16, writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's believed to be an early Christian creed, that early Christians repeated that over and over and over again. And not just Paul saying that he is the foremost of sinners, though he certainly is asserting that he believes that he is, but that each person who would recite and repeat that creed would realize that they are the foremost of sinners, but that Christ came to save those sinners, and that Jesus comes to save to the uttermost. I know I've mentioned the film The Passion of the Christ many times, and that wasn't really my intent. And yet there's one more thing I want to point out that I learned about this movie as I was reading of this this week. And there was something interesting that really kind of defeats the whole point or the whole charge of uh, anti-Semitism that's given against Mel Gibson in this film, is that, is that when he was filming it and when he had filmed the scene with Christ being nailed to the cross, or the actor playing Christ being nailed to the cross, instead of having an actor 
nail hands of Jesus to the cross. He had his own hands do that. And he did it with the intent that I actually think is probably a wiser theological point that he intended to make, is that he wanted to assert that in the nailing of the cross, that it was his hands, it was for his sins, for the sins of sinners, of the individual, of each person, not of some actor, but that he would have a reminder to himself and that others that it was for our sins that Jesus was nailed to the cross. Even just a moment ago, we sang in How Deep the Father's Love for Us, it was my sin that held him there. And now it's a clever turn of poetry. Technically, it was the nails that held him there. But the idea being that Jesus was crucified to save us from our sins. Us as individuals and not just, and us as sinners and not just the people who called for him to be crucified. And while I could take this text to say various different things about how, contrary to Pilate, we should pursue justice rather than be, you know, cave to a crowd, that we should be just in our legal dealings and protect others who might try to do wrongfully, and those technically are true when we can find them from Scripture, that's not really the point of this text. If we want to make sure that we're getting from the text what is being preached there, which we should always do. We shouldn't be adding our own points. We shouldn't be adding our own interpretations. We should be preaching and learning and teaching what is in the text. Then really what's in this text and the point of this text is rather plain. The point of this text before us is that Jesus, though clearly innocent, was crucified. And where, while Barabbas, who was clearly guilty, was let go. And in the same sense, Jesus is the substitute for sinners. Jesus is crucified so that we might be set free from our slavery to sin. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. And so we respond to this text appropriately by repenting of our sins and looking upon the sinless Savior who died. We never outgrow the gospel. We never outgrow that we need to repent of our sins. We're often quick to look at others and point out their sins. But how quick are we to look upon ourselves and realize that it was for our sins that Jesus was crucified? Repent and believe the gospel. And outside of Christ, if you reject Jesus as Savior, if you reject Jesus as Lord, then you are still in your sins and you are as guilty as Barabbas, as an insurrectionist against God's laws. But yet inside of Christ, there is an identity change. Because Jesus willingly took to the cross, because he was pierced for our transgressions, because he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus took the cross so that men like Barabbas might be set free. And the scriptures tell us boldly that if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. What a wonderful comfort we can take in the gospel to know that Jesus has set sinners free. And for those who have faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you are free indeed. And so for the Christian, go to a world that is dying and declare the good news of his perfect salvation. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we confess that we are sinners. We confess that we are insurrectionists in our heart against your law and against your rule and against your reign. We desire our own kingdoms to come. We desire our own will to be done rather than yours.